Sergio, if you like what we're doing here, if you support the show and you want to give support to the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. And if you do so, we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it. So support us by going to Patreon. Yahweh. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Sigal, welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane. I am your host. I want to talk about... The difference between Native American and being a Native person. And, you know, I, I did a previous show called Apples, Pretendians, and Mascots. And I'm not going to re, you know, restate all of that. But there is this, this general classification that oftentimes is used, especially with polling or, or with any kind of group data that they, they try to derive over Native people, where they just list, you know, this this general idea of Native American. You know, look, it shows up in census, uh, census, you know, recordings, the U.S. census that's done every 10 years. All There's all kinds of forms that are created, you know, everything from the Department of Motor Vehicle to voter registration to, to uh, you know, all these things that the federal government tracks where they list classifications of race. And, of course, they don't use things like American Indian or any of that stuff anymore. Now it's all Native American or Alaska Native. But a lot of these things are are self-identifiable, uh, self-identifiable. So we just we can just put it down on a document. So anybody can. Anybody can fill out a document and say that they're, say that they're Native. They're Native American. And there's no real test for it and or there's no real check for it and so it leaves this, this category that is really loosely defined and it can be anybody, you know, ranging from those who claim their grandmother was a Cherokee princess <laughs> to, to somebody who's lived, you know, you know, a continuous, you know, continuity in terms of you know, continuous lives on, you know, generation after generation on, on the native territory. So it's, it's a range. So I want to talk a little bit about the distinction and, and, and I don't want this to come across like I'm condemning one group or challenging somebody's nativeness per se, but more trying to define that identity. And, you know, so when I, when I go back and I, I think about some of the, the polling that was done over things like mascots, the Annenberg poll that cited nine out of 10 native people were okay with the, with the Washington football team's redskin name. And of course that poll was a phone poll, you know, and it's, and it's, you know, several decades old by now. And it was all based on somebody self-identifying on the other end of the, uh, of the phone that they, that they were native American without 
any qualification, without any real, you know, thorough methodology to determine whether those people were legitimately Native people and what that even means. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit because there is a whole, by by some estimates, maybe there are more Native people who have already begun because of assimilation policies and and geography and and so many other things have be, have moved away from their native communities and that represents some challenges but you also have I mean, because of you know foster care and and all kinds of other things you've had people who have no connection to native culture never had it and 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 never will but they're from a blood quantum standpoint they may be native and, and, and I don't want to, you know, again, I don't want to speak down or in any way pejoratively towards Native people who are essentially victims of assimilation programs. They're victims of poverty and land loss and, and all of that stuff. So I don't want to necessarily condemn anybody, but there still needs to be distinction. Because if you're going to poll, poll a people <laughs> and to understand what a people believe— or, or what their, their feelings or their thoughts are or opinions are, then at some point you've got better understand that you are accurately getting the opinion of, of, a, of a native people. So, and again, when I cite these, uh, these the, the various polling, and it's been done several times, but the last bit of polling on this native mascot issue made it very, very clear that the closer a native person was to their culture and their cultural connections, the more they opposed the use of native mascots. Well, that's that's significant, not only because of the mascot debate, but it but it shows how a person's view changes the more they are they are connected to native identity, native autonomy, sovereignty, native territory, and the philosophies that come with it. Now. I'm not saying that it's driven by specifically by ge geography. Like I said, many people, because of the lack of opportunities that exist on native territories, have had to go leave territory, leave their homelands to, you know, to, to pursue, you know, livelihoods and, and sustainability. And, you know, I, I think about the African, or the, I'm sorry, the Hawaiian native people who've had to, by some estimates, you know, more than 75% of Native Hawaiians live on the continent now because they've been driven off of the islands because of, of because of economy, the, the price of housing, you know, displaced from their lands, the cost of living, all of that stuff. While the cost of living may not be real high on Native territories here on, within, with our, within our Native territories, the opportunities are so, are so you know, scarce that to live a comfortable or a decent quality of life, many people have had to have had to pursue careers and locations that they could pursue those careers. I mean, even when we when we've remained on our territories, when I think about the things that we've had to do to sustain ourselves, whether it's being involved in the retail sector of gas and tobacco, or being involved in the, the hospitality industry with gaming and hotels. None of those things necessarily coincide with with us nurturing our our culture and our you know and and the legacy that we want to keep. So we're, we are under a constant assault, but nowhere is that more prevalent 
when native people are have left their territories and don't have any kind of support systems where they live. Look, I know many native people who do not live in their ancestral homeland. I'm, look, I'm, I'm Mohawk. I live in Seneca territory. <laughs> but I know nat many native people who have gone to the cities. They've gone to other areas and they've, and, and they've carried with them their philosophical views on, on who they are from an identity standpoint. They conduct themselves. In fact, you know, I, I think about my, my, my co-host on uh, Resistance Radio, Regan. She's able to pursue the work that, that is you know, a part of who she is as a Native person in many ways better in a, in a city than she can back home. Why? Because back home has been been so altered, and you know, with, with church and, and politics and and poverty, that it's made it difficult. So I'm not saying leaving your territory necessarily strips away um, strips away your identity. It's it, it can be problematic, but I'm not saying it necessarily strips it away. But if you lose the connection to back home, if you don't have anybody that grounds you back to, to your native identity, if you sever those ties, not just geographically, but if you, separate the, if you sever them based on, on relationships, if you no longer you know, can, can cite somebody in your family that is at, at least secondhand is, is connecting you to, to you know, fighting for sovereignty and autonomy, if you lose that, then that fight becomes less in you. And look, I'm not saying this because uh, to condemn any of it. My, my own parents, my, my father is a high steel worker. Many of the high steel workers who went to the city lost parts of their identity. They conformed. You know, the very reason that, that my generation, especially from Gunnawaga and some of the other Mohawk territories, doesn't speak the language or, 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 or we're not fluent in the language is because that generation did not see a strong enough value in ensuring that we spoke the language. Why? Because of what they went through. So they became through, through, through their own victimization uh, of assimilation, though part of the, of the problem that continued the assimilation. So when I do look at a people who I think, I would identify as Native American, but not necessarily people who are living a Native life. Those people are victims. They are victims of 200 years of assimilation. They are victims of the lack of opportunity that exists on our territories, the poverty, the unemployment, the limited space that we have, the land loss, the massive land loss. So anytime I hear somebody talk about you know, the, the loss of connection to our land, that we are victims of that. And, and I think it's important that we understand that, even to the extent that as victims, we, we may go the rest of the way when it comes to assimilation. We may willingly sever those ties. Why? Because it, because it doesn't seem to serve a value directly to our, to our lives as we live them although it has significant impact generationally and intergenerationally. So while it's not required when we live as native people away from our territories 
to embrace all that is non-native as a part of our identity, it happens. Because there's also this, this, this strong desire to get along <laughs> and, to, and to not necessarily be confrontational. Look, we, we deal with racism on a daily basis, and we either confront it or we, or we tolerate it. And, and we've seen this. Look, uh, uh, you know, black people have experienced this thing. You know, native people have experienced it. Brown people from all over, the, all over the world have experienced this. And what we are willing to allow, we are also willing to allow to continue. And, and this is where part of that difficulty is. Look, look I, get, I, I, I clearly get challenged, especially on the mascot issue, by the, the, the fact that, that the white people who really embrace this are always going to try to find native people that they can prop up, prop up to fully support the use of native mascots. And those people are not only victims of, you know, and perhaps willing victims, you know, uh, of that assimilation, you know, that would drive them to, to support this, but they're also being victimized in, in this process, We're being propped up. They're being used. So uh, there's a part of me that that's absolutely compassionate when when I when I see somebody going through this, but it doesn't make me tolerate it. I, I think we can be compassionate and intolerant of of some of that behavior, and I think confronting native people who look just like us, but who will invariably always side with with the opposition always side with with the non-native people in the issues that we're fighting for whether it's the mascot issue you know whether it's you know fighting for 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 you know missing and murdered indigenous women whatever the case may be environmentally look i know even as we challenge pipelines that there's native people who've relied on that industry for their for their for their careers why how could a native person think so little of the land that they would support extractive industries. I'll tell you why. Because of 200 years of oppression. Because of poverty. Because of the absolute lack of opportunity that exists in native territories. So am I going to condemn somebody? A native person who wants to mine coal or drill for oil? I can't, I can't flat out condemn them. But I still will oppose them. I still will oppose the industry that they're, that they're in. I mean, when I look at the role that Native people play in politics, look, I've always, I've been pretty open about how much I condemn Native people for, for running for office and for voting in their elections and for serving in their military. But why does that exist? I'll tell you why it exists. Because of the circumstances that we are victims of. The oppression. The lack of opportunity. Hey, look, Deborah Hallen being nominated for the, you know, for the interior department secretary, that's a great opportunity for her. And she is not only a native person, but she's a woman who has had very few opportunities you know, pr presented to her. It isn't just about glass ceiling. It's about overt racism. It's about, it's about misogyny. So, while I don't necessarily embrace her as some champion for Native people as she as, as she pursues her career choices, I understand that that part of those career choices are based on the her own victimization.
The fact that she's lost, that she's had limited opportunities. And it's the same thing for people enlisted in the military. I know people love to, to promote this idea that people enlist in the military because of our warrior culture. Bullshit. The reason people of color, not just native people, but people of color enlist at a higher rate than, than, uh, than you know, proportionally is because of limited opportunities, because of poverty. And, and to a lesser extent, in the hope that they may find some place that racism isn't so prevalent. You know, the, the idea of camaraderie and, you know, not, not just seeing the world and that kind of stuff, but is there a place that they can live and they can, and they can have a career where they aren't going to be victims of racism? I don't know if that exists in the military. I'm pretty sure it didn't, but that might've been the way, what, what drove them to, to enlist. I mean, many Native people use their enlistment as as a jumping off place to to become U.S. citizens before before we were ever allowed to be or forced to be. But even that, why would somebody abandon their own national identity to be an American? That's why I use words like Native American versus Native people, because there is a difference. Not all Native people choose to be labeled as Americans, but some do. And why? Why? Again, because of victimization, because of what their experience has been and what the opportunities have been. Look, it's, it's a strange thing. But even as I think about federal programs, government programs, if you're a Native person, and you want to, you know, apply for some small business administration benefit associated with being a minority in business. It isn't really going to work for you to do it on native territory. Why? Because our, our native holdings and, our, and our, all of those regulatory advantages that we exploit or utilize or, or enforce on our territories to give us some economic advantage goes away when we try to use, use a native program. And, and, and here's what I'm talking about specifically. In order to qualify for, to be a small business, you know, uh, or a minority owned business, you've got to keep your asset level low. Well, on native territory, in order to maintain our non-taxable status, we can't incorporate. We have to keep our holdings as personal assets. And if we list those personal assets and we try to evaluate those personal assets in a way that's going to give us some benefit, it also becomes, you know, the means by which you cross across a certain threshold to be qualified for minority status. These are, these are the real world problems. Even as we try to maintain a certain presence at home on our native territory versus taking advantage of certain programs off territory. So, the system is not rigged towards native people succeeding on native lands, which is why we lose so many native people to moving off. It's not just about pursuing education. I mean, many people can pursue education and come back home, but if you pursue that education and you come back home, how are you going to use that education? Where are you going to use it? What are the opportunities? Gaming and, and native government only provide so many jobs. And especially if you want to pursue a, a, a specific 
livelihood that doesn't necessarily fit within tribal politics or tribal economic development. It's problematic. So, and again, I don't want want to get too far away from where I started with this thing, but what I I really wanted to to explain and try, try to develop in a conversation is that there is a difference between being a native person of, or being a person of native ancestry or native descent and living as a native person. Now that both of those, even those two classifications, you know, have a pretty broad spectrum. I'm not suggesting that if you live on a native territory, if you're not living in a longhouse, that you're not native. I understand there's everything from elected councils and tribal councils and various kinds of businesses that exist. But if you live on a native territory and you are engaged in the community, you're going to have that connection. But if you have severed that connection because you pursued, you know, a career elsewhere, it does leave a, a gap. It does leave a hollowness. And I applaud those people who can leave their territories and still maintain the, that connectivity. And many people do it, but many people don't. And so we do end up with some people who clearly can, can make their case for being, you know, for being enrolled or being, or having a certain blood quantum or whatever their standard is for determining their, their definition as a native person. But there is a difference between living a life where sovereignty, autonomy, distinction, and culture are a part of who you are and somebody who has lost all of that. So where where I started with this thing had to do with this idea of polling. So when Native people are being asked certain, you know, poll questions to determine what native people think. It's, it's kind of problematic because we represent through 200 years of assimilation policies and worse. We represent a people that have been fractured and, and that we, we not just fractured, but have had so much stripped away that it's hard to say that the opinion you're going to see expressed and, and demonstrated by poll numbers is accurate. And like I said, in the latest polling that was done, I think NCAI may have played a role in this poll uh, over the mascot issue. They found that the more somebody was connected culturally to their, to, to their nation or to their people, the more they opposed the higher level of opposition there was towards, you know, towards native mascots being used by non-native people. And I think that that poll was, you know, and that poll clearly was not just for native people living on native territories. And and in fact, that's how they were able to determine how the change worked and how there was a stronger opposition to native mascots, the more somebody was, was culturally connected because they asked the question, so when I, when I hear somebody say, well, the poll question was, do you find the Washington Redskins name offensive? Well, that's an easy question for me to a- a- answer. But some people would say, nah, it doesn't really bother me. But if you ask the next question, well, how do you feel about 50,000 people in stands with, with, uh, with headdresses on? Eh, that one kind of bothers me. How do you feel about people you know, identifying themselves as Redskins? 
and, and, and wearing makeup and, 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 and costumes and all this. Yeah, that gets more offensive. So the farther you go into that co- question, and I'm not even suggesting that this, that this isn't about asking somebody more culturally connected, but the more you, you develop those questions, the, difference, the, the more information you gather and the more you find that Native people do oppose it. It's funny because even places, you know, and I've been having this, this debate in my old high school, and they're called the Cambridge Indians still to this day. They acknowledge that the tomahawk chop is wrong and they don't allow it anymore. They used to. I mean, it was only a few years ago. I remember hearing about some of the, uh, the, the football team all shaving their heads as, uh, in, uh, you know, in the Mohawk haircuts as a sign of solidarity. They wear their, you know, they're wearing their, their uh, instead of the black makeup on their eyes, they're, they're putting you know, war paint on. And always constantly making this analogy to playing football and war. But they said, no, we don't do that anymore. We, we don't have, you know, a, we don't have a, a, a mocked up costumed um, mascot running around in the field. We don't do that anymore. So you know that that was wrong. In fact, I've listened to some of the people who, who did advocate for native mascots, but were still opposed to the mockery. So you acknowledge that a certain level of mockery is wrong while a lesser level of it is what acceptable. So even as you know, many of these places have, have can't seem to separate themselves from the stuff. They know that there's a behavior that, that is unacceptable. They just don't know where the line is, but they want to draw a line because they want to keep their mascot. They want to keep the name. They might want to keep the logo, but they, they, they think by changing the behavior. And, and this is where it gets, again, it, it can get pretty uncomfortable, especially if you're native people and you've got to experience this. Uh, you know, I oftentimes you know, used to always cite this, this one Philadelphia fan who was both a Philadelphia Eagles fan and a Philadelphia Flyers fan. He'd go to these games when they were playing like the Washington football team or the, or the Chicago hockey team. And he'd impale a native, a rubber head that was made up like a, like a native person with a headdress and the war paint. And he'd impale it with a sword and he'd hoist it up during these games. They'd put him on television. And the question that I had is, how do I explain it to my seven-year-old grandson? How do I, how do I explain that guy to my seven-year-old grandson? And you can't. It's not acceptable. So we know that that crosses a line. We know that carrying a banner that says get ready for another trail of tears crosses the line, but it still happens. And as long as we, we don't acknowledge that some of these things are, are bound to white privilege, even the idea that some of these communities will search out a native person who and victimize them even more by putting them on the spot or exploit the fact that they've been victimized through these assimilation policies only makes the matter worse. And then when I hear people say, well, we're going to add more education. The fact of the matter is most of these, you know, uh, these places have never included any real education. The problem with mascots and the, and the problem even with what we have come to know as this, as this, this identity 
oftentimes is so tied with images of the past created by somebody else. So whether it's the Hollywood Indian headdress or pigeon English or Mohawk haircuts or, or whatever, we have come to, you know, to misidentify ourselves. Why? Because of being victims of, of these policies, these policies that are hundreds of years old. So, I mean, I, I don't, it's hard for me to condemn the very people who've been victimized and whose, whose lives have, have actually removed them from native culture because of that, because of being victims. It's hard for me to condemn them, even if I don't agree with them. And I guess what I hope more than anything else, as we continue with, with many of the things that we fight for, whether it's environmental concerns or whether it's the mascot issue or you know, what happens to our children. And as we fight to develop our own economies in ways that will not leave us without any prospects for the future, will not diminish our hope for quality of life standards that, that we deserve. I, I just hope we get there. I just hope we keep keep ourselves focused enough on our identity and on who we are and that we can bring some of the people that perhaps they've slipped away. Perhaps we've lost some of them. It, 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 I think it's frustrating because I'm, I'm experiencing, you know, a certain loss even today as old friends who have been pulled away politically and are pulled away over issues like the mascot issue or, or, or you know, or environmental issues. I feel like we're losing people rather than pulling them back. So I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, we can change the direction and that we can become more, I guess, embracing of, of our relatives and, and even, frankly, embracing of our allies. But there, is, there still does remain a huge spectrum of people who are identified as Native Americans and yet have very little that identifies them culturally as Native people. That's my message for today. So I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Thank you.